Uh, if you have Bibles this morning, you can go ahead and make your way to the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verses 17 through 34 is where we'll be um, today. If you're using one of those uh, black hardcover Bibles that I mentioned before, uh, page 958 uh, is where you will find, um, find today's text. Uh, some years back, there was a professor giving a lecture about the Lord's Supper, about communion. Uh, and afterward, a pastor uh, who had been in attendance for that lecture came up to the lecturer and said, I love what you had to say. We do communion at my church uh, every year on New Year's Eve, but I don't think my people would tolerate it more often than that. Could you suggest an alternative that would have the same effect? And the lecturer paused for a moment, and he replied, you know, um, that's a little bit like saying, I preach from the Bible once a year, but I don't think my people would tolerate it more often than that. Can you suggest an alternative? So these weeks, uh, last week and this week especially, we're, we're considering uh, preaching last week, the Lord's Supper this week. What we're really talking about there is the power of God, the power of the Word of God, specifically. As I mentioned, we, we're celebrating the, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation this Tuesday. The greatest reform of the Reformation was the recovery of the centrality, uh, the primacy, the authority of the Word of God. And like we saw last week, preaching only has power because of the word of God. It is the word of God proclaimed. Likewise, the sacraments only have power because they are the word of God made visible. By themselves, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, they would just be these actions with water and bread and wine. But when they're connected to the word of God, the sacraments become a unique way in which we experience the grace of God. And we experience our union with Christ, and we also experience our unity uh, with one another. One of the texts that gives us the best insight of, uh, into all of that comes in 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And so I'm going to read uh, from 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17. And I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place... When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. 
But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I will give directions when I come. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, it is not by bread alone that we live. We live by every word that comes from your mouth. And we pray this morning that you would make us hungry for your word, that it would nourish us today in the ways of your grace and in the ways of eternal life. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, the very bread of heaven. Amen. One of the first things uh, to notice about this text is that communion is communal. So it's about our relationship with God, of course. It's also very much about our relationships with one another. And throughout this letter, Paul has been answering these questions, addressing various issues, and correcting various errors among this young church in this, in this metropolitan city of Corinth. The particular error being addressed here is that in Corinth, the Lord's Supper has become a display of division between factions in the church, and specifically the, faction, the factions of the rich and the poor. So when this church would gather, the rich would arrive early, and they would bring the majority of the food. The poor, who by definition have less, also had to work longer hours. They weren't able to arrive to this meal until later. And so by the time that they actually got there, the time they got off of work and got there, they would be seated elsewhere, further away from kind of the center of the activity, and there would be less food to partake in because the rich people had already gone ahead and started eating. So these groups weren't so much sharing in a common meal together as they were eating their own individual meals and just happened to be in the same geographic proximity to one another. And that's why Paul says in verse 20, whatever it is you think you're doing, it's not the Lord's Supper. Why would he say that? Because that actually is the antithesis of what the Lord's Supper celebrates. As one author puts it, it's a destruction of the meaning of the supper itself because it destroyed the very unity which that meal proclaimed. So the Lord's Supper is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, made visible. Through broken bread, uh, through poured out wine, it displays the sacrificial substitutionary death of Jesus in which he took our sin uh, and took our condemnation upon himself, suffered in his body, and accomplished our salvation through that suffering. Jesus offered up his body, offered up his blood, so that by faith we might receive the benefits of his perfect uh, and sinless life. And the result of that, the result of the gospel for our relationships with other people, is that Jesus Christ has in his broken body broken down the dividing walls of hostility that normally separate people of different backgrounds, whether socioeconomic backgrounds or racial or ethnic backgrounds. Out of the many divided people, as we looked at a couple weeks ago in talking about passing the peace, Jesus has made one new humanity. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're always meant to do that together, not just individually. In this series, we've been considering uh, how we are always being formed by whatever it is that we worship and also by how we worship. That's true for us not only as individuals, it's actually true as a community of people. So, so my faith, quote-unquote my faith, uh, my relationship with Jesus, it's never completely independent it's always inter, 
dependence. Something of my formation, something of my being formed in Christ affects your being formed in Christ, affects our collective being formed into the image of Christ. And so as we step through this text this morning, uh, we're going to do that with the same communal lenses with which Paul wrote this. The Lord's Supper, and as we've talked about this before occasionally in the life of our church, some of this will sound familiar to you, but the Lord's Supper is four simultaneous things. What are we doing when we come to this table? It's commemoration, anticipation, proclamation, and participation. And as we do those four things, each of those things is forming us into a specific kind of community. So as commemoration, the Lord's Supper forms us into a community of gospel astonishment. And second, as anticipation, the Lord's Supper forms us into a community of eternally-minded compassion. As proclamation, the Lord's Supper forms us into a community of integrity. And as participation, the Lord's Supper forms us into a community that hungers for Jesus. So that's where we're going this morning. First, as commemoration, the Lord's Supper forms us into a community of gospel astonishment. What does it mean to, to commemorate something? Uh, to commemorate something is to celebrate it, uh, to remember. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, as Paul is recalling here in verse 24, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So we are to, when we celebrate this meal, remember and celebrate the fact that Jesus has, with his body and blood, purchased our salvation. And this is the, the part of communion that is rear-facing. It looks backward. And it's really the aspect of communion that we are, are most often familiar with and comfortable with. Over the centuries, um, Christians have at various times expressed concern that if done too frequently, commemoration at the Lord's Supper uh, will become rote uh, and will become an empty ritual. But think about it this way. Coming to this table only becomes rote if we're overestimating ourselves and thereby undervaluing the work of Christ. So the Lord's Supper for us will only ever be stale if the gospel itself is stale in our perception. Commemoration requires that we first and always remember our own weakness and our own inability. So maybe you'll resonate with this. In, in moments when our faith feels strong and we're not in some kind of crisis in our life, we can so quickly, even subconsciously, become self-righteous and self-dependent. We begin to rely on our own strength. But this table has forever exposed us as those who are unable. And so weekly, this table is meant to expose us yet again, to remind us yet again that all you and I contribute to our salvation is the very sin that we need saving from. That is what we contribute to our salvation. And this is a shared part of our identity as human beings. This is the communal part of communion, one of them. So if your life is more successful and put together than like the guy you see across the room who comes in on a Sunday morning, congratulations, you need this table just as much as they do. And actually, you're probably in more danger of forgetting that or missing that entirely. When coming to this table feels stale or feels rote, it's almost always because we've become way too confident in ourselves. As we then remember our inability, we likewise remember and look upon the finished work of Jesus that we were those who, like sheep, had gone astray, but that God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or like we heard in the words of encouragement this morning, that by his wounds we are healed. 
In another one of his letters written to a man named Timothy, Paul says simply, remember Jesus Christ. So to come to this table is to do precisely that. It's to remember Jesus. And that remembering is meant to constantly stir us up uh, with this kind of fresh awe and fresh astonishment in the powerful work of Christ on our behalf. Now, if we're honest, it doesn't always do that. It doesn't always do that. There are times when familiarity breeds contempt. But here's the beauty of this. Communion is communal. So in those moments where personally, where individually, astonishment in, in the work of Christ seems impossible for you, when your heart is in a place where it just has grown cold, and you can't seem to perceive a single way in which the work of Christ is making a difference in your life. Allow in those moments the community of God's people to be a picture of that for you. This table is not just for you. It's the body and blood of Christ given for many. And so some, some of those many are always sitting next to you or behind you or in front of you when you gather as the people of God on a Sunday. By the work of Christ, we together have become part of this people he has rescued and he has purified for himself. Next week, we're going we're gonna to welcome some people into covenant here at Liberty. Uh, as part of that, we always share a little bit of, the, of their snapshots, a little bit about their lives and who they are and how they came to believe in Jesus. Whenever we do that, that's really a, a present-day example of the same thing that Paul has already done earlier in this letter in 1 Corinthians 6. In 1 Corinthians 6, he reminds them this, of this communal identity and what was true of them before they came to know Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this, such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So when you struggle to commemorate the work of Christ in your own life, look around you and commemorate it in the lives of others. And remember and be astonished by the stories of how Jesus has rescued and purified a people for himself. We're not ever simply individuals who commemorate. As much as we rejoice in our own story of what God has done in us, we are a community of commemoration, rejoicing what God has done in the lives of all who come. Second, as anticipation, the Lord's Supper forms us into a community of eternally minded compassion. Eternally minded compassion. So where commemoration looks to the past, looks backward, anticipation looks forward to the future. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he said that he would not eat of this meal or drink of this cup again until it was fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when Jesus says that, he's talking about uh, the consummation of God's redemptive work in the world. That happens, that, that consummation happens when Jesus comes again. He came into the world once to rescue us from our sin. He comes again to judge the living and the dead. The book of Revelation depicts this as a, a massive feast that happens in the kingdom of God called the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's a wedding reception that is celebrating this full and complete unity between Jesus, the groom, and the church, his bride. And so as Paul says here in verse 26, 
what we're doing when we come to this table, it's keeping a mini preview feast until he comes and we celebrate the fullness of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Of all of the implications of this, one is how we treat one another, that we are called to treat one another in light of the fact that Jesus is coming again. And that we're to consider others with what I'm calling an eternally-minded compassion. In light of the fact that the, that, that the future of everyone we cross paths with is either to be fully united with Jesus forever or to be forever separated from him. C.S. Lewis, famous author, in his book, The Weight of Glory, says this. The dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or a horror and corruption such as now you meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. This was before Stranger Things came out. You could probably meet one in Stranger Things now too. He goes on to say, all day long we are in some degree helping each other to one of these, de one of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. So the more that we anticipate eternity, the more we will treat people with an eternally minded compassion. It will affect absolutely everything about how we perceive and interact with other people. And Paul actually fleshes that out uh, with some specificity in his letter, uh, 1 Thessalonians. He says, precisely because Jesus is coming again, admonish the idol. So this isn't a time to hide out or wait passively. However long we're in this season of anticipation, it's that long that God has important, necessary work for us to do in this world. Paul says, encourage the faint-hearted. And he says that because you're going to get faint-hearted. And you're going to get tired. And you're going to grieve. And you're going to need encouragement. And so will everybody else. Communion anticipates, though, the reality that Jesus is coming and that when he does, we no longer will need this meal of faith because our faith will be sight. And we will, instead of this feast, mini-feast, will partake of the actual wedding supper of the Lamb. Paul says, help the weak. Sin is real. It's not eradicated yet. And in our own sin and in the fracture that sin brings about, we're weak people. We need help. And sharing this common identity as those who need God's salvation, communion forms us to remember that and to carry one another's burdens. We help one another make it through this life. Paul says, be patient with everyone. And what he's saying there is because it's Jesus who is returning, people actually matter, not just results, not just tasks, tasks or projects. So this isn't the same thing as like an apocalyptic doomsday message. It says the world is ending, so hurry up and accomplish whatever agenda it is. This is Jesus coming again. It means actually love people rather than bulldozing them. Paul goes on to say, don't repay evil for evil, but seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And I'm sure this is 
overwhelmingly obvious to, to us in the room this morning, so much in this world is not the way that it's meant to be. But because Jesus is coming again, we leave vindication to him and we seek the genuine good of others, even if they have not offered the same to us. Paul goes on to say, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, not as some kind of baseless hope or optimism, because you really have substance to do so in light of Jesus coming. And the last thing he says is abstain from every form of evil. There's no time to waste on life-quenching or soul-killing pursuits. We've been saved from evil. One day we will be fully saved from all evil. So pursue that kind of life, that kind of holiness in the days in between. All of that to say, a community that anticipates the coming of Christ and does that in communion, that will be a community that displays compassion in light of eternity. That we'll see one another not only as we are now, but in light of who we will be when Jesus comes again. Third, as proclamation, the Lord's Supper forms us into a community of integrity. Integrity. Look back at verse 26. Paul says there, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what I or other people do on Sundays from the pulpit, that's what all of us do together when we come to this table. To receive the body and the blood of Christ is to declare the beautiful reality that sin is broken, that there is indeed salvation in Jesus Christ, and that he is in the process of making all things new. One thing that does in us is to form us into a community of mission. As we come to this table, we, we see not only our own need for this, but we long for other people who don't currently experience it to be part of this with us, both in this life and at that wedding feast of the Lamb. But even more, the Lord's Supper forms us into a community of integrity. Why would I say that? What does that mean? Well, for one thing, we should only partake in this if we believe the truth that it proclaims that the sin of the world required the body and the blood of Jesus, that that's our only hope, that the finished work of Jesus is our only hope in the world. In verse 28, Paul goes on to say, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. To examine yourself means to consider your own need for the salvation purchased by Jesus. It's to consider the, the sin that even though you don't want it there, the sin that remains in you. And it's to turn away from that sin, to repent of that sin, and to turn back toward God. It's to consider the cost of that sin and to see the work of Christ as its only remedy. So every week at this table, you'll hear myself or one of our other elders say that if you don't believe, uh, you shouldn't receive the Lord's Supper. And we say that because doing so would be to proclaim something that actually you don't proclaim, that you don't believe. If you're not a Christian, what I hope you always feel here in this church and in this community of people, I hope you always feel welcome. I hope you always feel respected. But it's actually better for you. It's for your good that we say don't receive this because thereby you would be compromising your integrity by proclaiming something that you didn't personally believe. And then what's more, as Paul is talking about here, communion because it's the word of God made visible, like the word of God itself, communion is really a double-edged sword. It's a means of grace for those who believe, for those who are Christians. But for those who aren't, communion is a means of God's judgment against sin. Think about that this way. 
the death of Jesus, that's only good news for those who trust in it for their salvation. Otherwise, uh, to commemorate the death of Jesus, to anticipate the day he comes again, that's not a joyful thing. Jesus gave his body and blood so that God's judgment would fall on him and not on us. But apart from our faith in that, God's judgment remains on us. And that's why Paul warns us, if you don't believe this, don't, don't drink judgment upon yourself. Don't condemn yourself by celebrating the death of Jesus. He did this because there was judgment on us and there still would be if not for this. So if you're not a Christian, this is why we say don't receive this. Receive Jesus instead and look to him, trust him and his work as the basis for your salvation, for your reconciliation with God. If you are a Christian, but there's some aspect of your life that's inconsistent with what you believe, then what Paul is saying here is examine yourself and repent of the inconsistency. And if you're unwilling to do that, if you're unwilling or unable to repent, then integrity would demand that you don't partake in this either. And similarly, if you find yourself uh, inattentive or apathetic to the work of God, if you fail to perceive anything of the sin that remains in you, it's in those moments you actually are just as likely as someone who overtly and blatantly rejects God. It's in those moments where you're inattentive to the work of God, inattentive to the sin that remains in you, where you're just as likely to receive this in an unworthy manner. And also, if there's hostility between you and another Christian, and if you in your heart, if you're harboring unforgiveness or bitterness toward another person, Jesus calls you to go and to be reconciled to that person before you come back to this table. Communion is a celebration of community, of the fact that we've been caught up into this great work of God and become part of this people that he has purified for himself. So it's inconsistent. It would lack integrity completely to rejoice in the forgiveness purchased by Jesus while remaining entrenched in unforgiveness toward a fellow Christian. So if any of those things describe you or where you're at, integrity would demand that you don't receive this. But, and here's where I really need you to hear me clearly, but if you are weak and needy, and if you are aware of your sin, and if in seeing that sin you are repentant, then integrity demands that you must receive this. Because this table is the gospel, and the gospel is for you. This is not a table for sinless people. This is a table for repentant people. And so to come, to wait, to come to this table until your life is figured out and put together or until you feel in and of yourself worthy to receive the love of God, that means you will never come. The gospel is that Jesus saves sinners. And if that is the gospel that we believe, then so long as we are repentant of our sin, integrity demands that we come. Because to refrain from coming in those moments would actually be to form us in a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. A gospel that says, I have to get myself ready to come. And that's not the gospel. You must come if you're, unrepent if you're, if you're repentant and you believe. Fourth and finally, as participation, the Lord's Supper forms us into a community that hungers for Jesus. So when by faith, we receive the bread and the wine at this table. We're experiencing the grace of God in a unique and special way. Paul said just in the chapter prior to this one, 1 Corinthians 10, 
that this cup and this bread is participation in the body and blood of Christ. What does that mean when he says that? Well, for one, it's participating in worship. We're honoring and and giving worship to, to Christ when we come and participate. But it's even deeper than that. This table is a tangible experience of our union with Christ. Union with Christ is, is one of these pictures, this beautiful reality of our salvation. But it's so often intangible. How do you experience, how do you, how do you know that you're united with Christ? Well, the physical experience at the Lord's table makes what is otherwise intangible, tangible. And by doing so, it strengthens our faith. So without digging into all the different theological views this morning, I just want to distinguish the view that, that I hold, that this church holds in, in two ways. Some don't associate the Lord's Supper with salvation closely enough. It's like they're not even really that related. It's only a remembrance. It's only a memorial of what Jesus did. Others too closely associate the Lord's Supper with salvation. That regardless of whether you believe or not, you can take the bread and take the wine and experience union with Christ. Both of those would be ditches on either side of the road. But as Paul describes in this text, the Lord's Supper is different from every other kind of meal. Because it's the word of God made visible, there is power in it. And so people in Corinth, how crazy is this, are getting sick and dying when they partake in an unworthy manner. They're dying when they don't receive the Lord's Supper in the right way. And on the other hand, because of that same power, those who partake in a worthy manner will find themselves nourished and strengthened and renewed in the very grace of God. Now, this is mysterious. I don't pretend to like have an exact answer for how that works. That's actually why we call it a sacrament. The word sacrament comes uh, from the Latin word meaning mystery or secret. So it's a great mystery that ingesting bread and wine can renew you in the very grace of God. But by faith, that's exactly what happens at the Lord's table. And to the degree that we acknowledge and embrace that mystery, we really will want, we'll have a longing to partake in the Lord's Supper all the time. But even more than that, and even more importantly than that, we will find in ourselves an ever-increasing hunger for Jesus himself. A longing to know, a longing to be known by the author and perfecter of our salvation. And it's a real gift that food is the metaphor, is the display of this. Because when you, eat, when you and I eat meals throughout our week, do you eat every few days or do you eat every day? Do you ever think, man, dinner again? Um, that's really becoming rote and ritualistic. Maybe I should hold off for a week or two and then have dinner again. Of course you don't do that. Nor do you only eat food to remember what food tastes like. It's not like some kind of ceremony where, hey, remember that steak I had 10 years ago? Let me have a hamburger and that will remind me of the steak uh, that I had years ago. The reason that we eat and drink every day is because every single day we are hungry and thirsty. Every single day we need food and drink to sustain our lives. Spiritually and physically, our lives are only ever sustained by Jesus. And we're meant to experience a deep and continual hunger for him. So in his kindness, Jesus has invited us to feast on his finished work, to know him, to be known by him in the breaking of the bread, and to be sustained by his grace in our union with him. As John says at the beginning of his gospel, from his fullness, we have received grace 
upon grace. Nowhere will you taste of that grace more tangibly than through the broken bread and the poured out wine at this table. So however much you already value the Lord's Supper, may you value it even more. Because unlike anything else, the Lord's Supper forms us into a community that hungers for Jesus. Amen. Let me pray. Jesus, we come this morning acknowledging that we need to feast on you. We need you to sustain our lives. We need your grace not only to experience a union with you in the first place, but we need your grace to live out this life in union with you. And we are weak and fickle and feeble people, and we forget, and our hearts grow cold, and we begin to trust ourselves rather than trust you. Forgive us for that. And I pray for the men and women in this room. Pray that you would now give us an opportunity to examine ourselves. And I pray that your spirit would work great and deep repentance in our hearts where we need to repent. And I pray that then, as those who are repenting, that we would come to this table, that we would feast again on the finished work of Christ on our behalf, be renewed in your grace, be strengthened to continue on to be sustained in this life that you have called us to. Thank you for your finished work, Jesus. It is our hope. It is our only hope in this world. Let me pray this in your name. Amen.